Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. If this is your first time listening, I strongly suggest beginning with Episode 1, A Murder Most Foul. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. In June of 1614, Pope Paul V published the first version of the Ritual Romanum, a hefty tome written in Latin that contained the complete official collection of approved services that may be performed by a priest or a deacon in the Catholic Church. Think of it as the handbook on how to lead a Catholic congregation, an idiot's guide to Sunday Mass or baptisms for dummies, or weddings, funerals, confirmations, all the greatest hits. Everything is covered, step by step, from what you should wear, what you should say, when to stand or sit, eat, drink, pray, or sing. And as mentioned in an earlier episode, the book remained unchanged for more than 350 years until the advent of the Second Vatican Council in 1969. The first major step the council took with regard to the book was to separate it into fascicles. Basically, each chapter from the original became its own much shorter book similar to serialized narrative fiction that was popular in the 1800s. A new chapter of a book would be released each week until you had the entire story. But for the Ritual Romanum, this was done to make it easier for a priest to just quickly grab the book that covered the services he needed to brush up on, a funeral mass, say, and not have to be bothered with lugging around the entire cumbersome original. The other task the council undertook was to update several of these fascicles to reflect a more modern understanding of the Catholic rites. Get a new perspective, a new translation from the ancient Latin. And once this make this book better can of worms was opened in 1969, it became something of an editorial bonanza for the church. Books and sacred rituals that were untouched for centuries received further updates in 1970, 72, 73, and 74, then again in 84 and 85, 1993, and where we're concerned, 1998. Why is 1998 of interest to this story? That was the year Pope John Paul II decided to oversee some quote-unquote slight alterations to the last book of the Ritual Romanum. Its title? exorcisms, and certain supplications. 
From Cavalry Audio, this is The Devil Within. Episode 4. What Fools These Mortals Be. I will, from time to time in this episode, be reading passages directly from the Ritual Romanum as they pertain to the evolution of our narrative. Here's a portion of the decree included on the title page of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications. Among the sacramentals, the Church, obedient to the Lord's Prayer, has, from ancient times, mercifully provided means for God to be implored through pious supplications, that the Christian faithful may be set free from all dangers, especially from the snares of the devil. In particular, exorcists were instituted in the Church to heal those possessed by the evil one, imitating the charity of Christ, even by commanding demons in the name of God to retreat, that they might do no further harm to human creatures in any way. Therefore, this congregation publishes the preset revised rite of exorcism, approved by the Supreme Pontiff John Paul II on 1 October 1998, so that it may be used in place of the norms and formulas from Title 12 of the Roman Ritual, which have been in use until now. Throughout this episode, we'll be hearing more from author Mark Heal, as well as a man named Edward Sherlocker, a Christian minister for almost 40 years. Pastor Sherlocker is a man of tremendous faith and a seen-it-all type who has stories about the battle for the soul of humanity against the forces of darkness. Frankly, that'll keep you up at night. But as a spiritual warrior, he relies on his faith and his wits to carry the message and honor the Lord. Also, he's an exorcist. I wanted to speak with Mr. Sherlocker specifically because he, like the religious leaders in our story, isn't Catholic. He's a Lutheran. But he is very familiar with the Roman Rite and, as one would expect, the steps to diagnosing, preparing for, and carrying out an exorcism are virtually the same across all Christian denominations. Early in the book on exorcisms, it's described how Jesus himself was the first Christian exorcist, and then he awarded that same power to his apostles and other disciples. It also made very clear that there are two types of exorcisms, minor and major. Here's Pastor Sherlocker. So a minor exorcism would be, for example, if you are the father of a family and and there's a problem, you can pray and say, God, please protect my family, remove this negativity from my home. That's a minor exorcism. And any person who is baptized, any person who is uh, a Christian believes in Christ and has been baptized, has that authority to do that. But that's minor exorcism, where you ask God to do it. Before we go on, and maybe we should have covered this earlier, let's go over exactly what an exorcism is. Pastor Sherlocker touched on it briefly, and it's actually quite simple. In terms of etymology, the late Latin origins of the word exorcism is exorcismus, which is defined as a calling up or driving out of evil spirits. 
But more interesting, at least to me, is the Greek exorcismos. I feel it more accurately encapsulates what an exorcism or supplication actually is. The Greek exorcismos is defined as the administration of an oath. Remember the title of the chapter from the Roman ritual, Exorcisms and Certain Supplications. A supplication is the act of asking for something, humbly, often on one's knees in prayer. But a supplication differs from prayer in one major way. Praying can be sincere thanksgiving and gratitude, or a request for something from God. A supplication always includes a request. And this is where the Greek exorcismos comes into play. The administration of an oath. An example in the secular world would be a witness in a trial who is reminded by counsel that they are under oath and are bound to tell the truth. The authority in this example is justice itself that demands honesty and the rigorous administration of the oath to tell the truth taken by the witness. In the case of an exorcism, the authority is Jesus himself. According to the Bible, God's authority is absolute. As he commands, so must the commanded obey. For an ordained priest who has received the permission of the bishop of the archdiocese to perform an exorcism, this authority rests with him. Major exorcism is where the clergy stand in the place of Christ, what we would call persona Christi, okay? And so they actually, when you get to that point, you actually are speaking for Christ, and you then can demand that the spirits obey you because you stand in the place of Christ as his representative. That's the Roman right. So an exorcism, in its simplest terms, is a priest standing in for Jesus, asking the demons currently inhabiting the body of a disciple to please leave. And since God's authority is absolute, they are compelled to obey. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ 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 compels you. Now, where it gets tricky is when the demons don't want to leave because they realize it's much nicer in this human body on Earth compared to their other existence in the fiery pits of hell. So we're talking major exorcism here with the case of Michael Taylor. Here's how it's described in the Ritual Romanum. Chapter 2, Sections 10 and 11. The mystery of divine loving-kindness, however, becomes more difficult for us to understand. When, with God's permission, sometimes there occurs cases of particular torment or possession on the part of the devil of some human being who is a member of the people of God and has been enlightened by Christ so as to walk as a child of light towards eternal life. Then the mystery of iniquity, which is at work in the world, clearly manifests itself, even though the devil is unable to cross over the limits imposed by God. When such things occur, the Church implores Christ the Lord and Savior and, relying on His strength, 
offers to the member of the faithful who is tormented or possessed a number of helps so that he or she may be freed from torment or possession. Chief among these helps is the solemn major exorcism, which is a liturgical celebration. For this reason, exorcism, which is, quote, directed at the expulsion of demons or liberation from demonic possession through the spiritual authority which Jesus entrusted to his church, end quote, is a petition in the category of sacramentals and therefore a sacred sign by which affected particularly of a spiritual nature are signified and obtained by the church's intercession. Wow. A lot going on there. Setting aside the church admitting that possessions happen with God's permission and the, quote, mystery of iniquity, end quote, of terrible things happening to great people under the watchful eye of a loving God, which, by the way, clearly translates to, God caused it, but don't worry because God can fix it. Why? Because God is mysterious. Move on. Nothing to see here. Aside from that, what jumps out is that an exorcism is a petition. Hey demons, it's Jesus. You're no longer welcome here. Please leave. Sometimes they listen. Oftentimes they don't. At least not right away, because ultimately they have to listen to God. But also, because sometimes they're not there to begin with. And that's why the capital C Church came up with the incredibly important step in the pregame leading up to an exorcism called discernment. More of The Devil Within after the break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Discernment is a gift that we're told by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament that is given out to the church, and that can be given out to people who are not clergy as well. So that's a gift that that I have, that, that God has given me to kind of see things and know things. And um, you, you want to use whatever resources. See, if somebody has been experiencing something, it is going to have an effect on the mind, on the body, and on the spirit. So by definition, there are going to be psychological issues. Now, that doesn't mean that all psychological issues are demonic either. That's the dangerous thing. Because there's a lot of people out there, for whatever reason, every time somebody gets a nosebleed or they get a panic attack, it's something evil, right? When most of the time it's not. We should, all of us, take comfort in the knowledge that the Catholic Church, and really all Christian denominations that regularly practice exorcisms, are fully aware that mental disease exists. And it's not necessarily the work of Satan. The Church, in fact, admits that actual demonic possession is exceedingly rare. Despite certain eras in modern times where it seemed like there was an epidemic of demonic possessions, the church always had a built-in failsafe called discernment, 
that would allow a specially trained or specially gifted priest go through a rather rigorous diagnostic process in order to determine the veracity of a claim of possession. The problem, of course, is that we're still dealing with a human being, attempting to decide if another human being has been invaded by demons, by asking questions and, you know, feeling their vibe. Seriously, the quote gifted discernment specialist will have a vast instinctive knowledge of the prime suspects when it comes to demons that are likely to invade the bodies of the faithful. Certain demons will lie to you. Others will masquerade as maybe symptoms of PTSD or schizophrenia so they can remain in the host's body a little longer. But then, much, much more often than not, no demons are detected during the diagnosis. And the church, mercifully, directs the person to counseling, medical care, or most likely, the front pew for the next Sunday Mass. But times are different now. You would be hard-pressed to find any upstanding member of the religious community refer to themselves as an enthusiastic exorcist, the way Reverend Peter Vincent did in 1974. He was a vicar, a man of power and influence with regard to his flock and his community. But back then, exorcisms were almost de rigueur. If you weren't performing exorcisms, you were being too discerning. And lots of possessed people were being forced to endure the torments of hell for no good reason. No good reason at all. Here's more from Mark Heal, author of The Sussex Devils, on Reverend Vincent and his thoughts on exorcism. If you are a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And if you believe that Satan is real and demons are real, uh, spirits are real, then there comes a tendency to see all of the, the, all problems, especially mental problems, as being curable through that means. Now, th- there are plenty of clergy who, although I might not agree with what they believe in, I th- would take a much more responsible view than that. They, they would say, well, demonic possession is possible, but it's not usual. It's very rare and it needs to be t- taken very seriously and treated with enormous care. Not everyone who believes in, in exorcism is an irresponsible lunatic. But I think it's fair to say that the Reverend Vincent was, I mean, when I say he was an enthusiastic exorcist, I mean, I'm quoting his own description of himself at the, at the later inquest. And he really believed that it did good. And there was, there was a growing awareness of it as well. One of the things that came out when I was researching the Sussex Devils and from talking to people who were involved in the in the Knight case, from people in the church, was that several people said to me, what you have to understand, Mark, is that we didn't really understand the condition in, in those days. It was new. We hadn't really encountered it before. It was rare. And therefore, we we yes, we probably did make mistakes, but we didn't really know how to handle possession in those days or, you know, um, involvement with the occult. Therefore, there was an acceptance that, yes, we might have gone over the top because we didn't know. The more candid uh, Christians who, who I talked to admitted that, they were puzzled and they were they were doing their best to try and um, cure something which seemed to them to be perfectly obviously a, a case of, of possession but but you know they, they didn't know they were they were they were blind in the dark 
the Reverend Vincent didn't seem to have any of those restraints. He felt that a lot of people's mental problems were, in fact, caused by some kind of spirit and, and that the, the easiest and best way to cure them was to cast out the spirit. And it might be worthwhile talking about what exactly that involves. What was the diagnostic process for Michael Taylor? According to the Ritual Romanum, there are some basic signs that could lead someone to believe that a person is possessed. The following is from Chapter 3, Section 16 of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications. An exorcist, therefore, should not proceed to celebrate an exorcism unless he has ascertained with moral certitude that the one to be exorcised is really possessed by a demon and, if possible, celebrate it with the consent of that person. According to established practice, the following are considered as signs of being possessed by demons. Speaking a number of words in an unknown language or understanding someone speaking. Making known distant and hidden events showing strength beyond the nature of the individual's age or condition. Such signs can offer some indication. Since, however, signs of this kind are not necessarily to be reckoned as coming from the devil, it is also necessary to pay attention to other things, especially those of the moral and spiritual order, which is another way manifest diabolical intervention as, for example, vehement aversion from God, the most holy name of Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, the Church, the Word of God, sacred things and rites, especially sacramental ones, and from sacred images. And finally, sometimes the relation of all things to faith and to spiritual combat in the Christian life must be carefully weighed. Since the evil one, first of all, is the enemy of God and of everything that unites the faithful together with the redemptive action of God. Please note that nowhere in the preceding passage was there the mention of or if they're really angry because they were rejected by a woman. Did Michael Taylor display any of the other signs mentioned? Well, he often spoke in tongues, but that was celebrated as communion with God not possession by the devil. He showed no aversion to Christian relics. He continued to attend church. He continued to pray. But he was, seemingly, unraveling. There are other signs that are known to exorcists who are in the trenches regularly. Here's more from Pastor Sherlocker. Yeah, superhuman strength. People are doing things that go beyond what you would consider just adrenaline running through the system, like physically lifting things that are just, it's impossible. It's not possible, you know. The other thing too is, and this is an important one that I that I notice as well, and, I, and now this is not something that most people will discuss because I don't think most of them have this experience. What happens with me is when I'm with someone and I'm doing work or I'm about to do work, usually I'll start with the counseling context, if not right there in the beginning, as things start, the eyes will go black. From a phenomenological standpoint, I'm perceiving there's no whites in the eyes. Now, I could be hallucinating myself, but that's what I'm observing. And sometimes it's a 
almost kind of serpentine look as well. And sometimes it can just be for a split second. I know in my case, what I've learned from that is it was a part of a discernment gift to to see what's there, you know, or to hear. Sometimes I, you know, I hear things that are going on, not audibly like with my physical ears. It's, but it's it's real. So back to Michael Taylor and his attack of Marie Robinson that sent shockwaves through their small community of Christian fellowship. Michael was terribly out of sorts, and his wife, Christine, surely wanted to put as much distance between her family and Marie Robinson as possible. You can imagine how little it did to help that the morning after the attack, Marie paid a visit to the Taylor home to try and smooth things over with Christine. It didn't go as Marie had planned it to go. Christine completely rejected Marie and sent her away sternly. Although still committed to her new faith, Christine felt it would be better for everyone if she and her husband attended a new church and leave St. Thomas's and the Garber group firmly in their past. That wasn't good enough for Marie. She claims that she was acting out of a sense of Christian love when she took things to the next appalling level. You can imagine as the leader uh, of the local church, to be fair to the Reverend Vincent, it would be irresponsible of him not to want to find out what the hell was going on in his local house groups with people trying to sort of swap with each other. And I have no doubt as well that the whole issue of sexual tension and all clear sort of relationship and confusion, the relationship between the you know, wife uh, Marie and Michael was also transmitted to the priest. So he understandably decides to step in. What on earth is going on? So he um, says, well, I, I'm going to go and um, meet the tailors and find out what's happened. I need to know what's going on. And Michael says that Marie Robinson is possessed by the devil. Marie Robinson is the devil. Michael is now changed 180 degrees from Marie being the object of his uh, admiration and affection. No, no, she's now the devil and she's responsible for putting the devil inside me. What's happening here, I think, is quite obvious, is Michael is blaming his behaviour on um, Marie is the one who's somehow the cause of this, because without this, I wouldn't be in this situation, and so she must be the cause of this. And I think it's it's easy to see uh, uh, the, the reasons why he might have said that. What I think is less understandable is what the Reverend says, because the Reverend doesn't say, look, I think everybody needs to calm down here. Maybe we should find you a new church group. I'll have words with Marie. This has clearly got out of hand, which would be the kind of thing you'd expect a responsible church leader to say. Let me find out about this. Instead, what the the priest appears to have said to Christine and, and Michael is, yes, I, I, you, this sounds very serious. We need to get to the bottom of this, uh, where this uh, demonic possession has come from. The Reverend Vincent gets involved, and things begin to quickly spiral. First, Michael claims that it was Marie, in fact, who caused his possession because she is in league with Lucifer and a hidden Satanist who trolls church groups looking for vulnerable victims to offer up to the Dark Lord. Nonsense, claimed the Reverend. That's exactly what the devil would make you think. An exorcism was offered as a cure to what ailed Mr. Taylor, but at first was dismissed. The Reverend and Marie Robinson were turned away for the moment. No official discernment, 
no diagnostic process that in any way resembles what is demanded in the Roman Rite. Reverend Vincent basically decided upon an incredibly aggressive course of action based on the advice of a lay preacher. With no more than a botched exorcism under her belt, followed by a finger-pointing match where both were accusing the other of being an agent of the devil. All the while, Michael Taylor is barely keeping it together. But now what happens is that Michael starts to behave very oddly indeed. He starts walking the streets, shouting at people. He started shouting at the neighbors, we must all drink milk, the milk of human kindness. And he becomes very um, obsessed by the phases of the moon and he can't sleep. He stays up all night. Some of the time he spends trying to pray with Christine, his wife. But I think the overall picture that we get here is a man who is falling to pieces. And again, it's not that surprising. Suddenly his life has gone from really being looking as if it was taking the up and turning it round to collapsing. His his marriage must have been in an awful state at this point. Um, they, they seem to have remained, they lived together still and remained friends. But nevertheless, he's admitted in front of everybody and all their friends that, that uh, he was attracted to this other woman. He's still unemployed. He's He's shouting at people in the street. He's clearly a man who is colloquially losing his marbles. That's clear. So this is reported back continuously now to Peter Vincent. And again, doesn't say, my goodness, poor old Michael Taylor looks like he really does need a holiday and need to calm down or possibly spend some time at the psychiatrist. No. His behaviour confirms my original diagnosis that that somehow or another there's some demonic influence at work here. Has it come from me? I don't know. But one way or another, as Michael Taylor himself told me, the devil is within him now. And this is a manifestation of it. So we need to take more serious action. More after the break. This is the part of the episode where I need to shine a light on the most important, quote, slight alteration to the exorcism fascicle in 1998. Chapter 3, Section 17 reads, Regarding the necessity of using the rite of exorcism, the exorcist will make a prudent judgment after diligent inquiry, always preserving the seal of confession, having consulted to the extent possible experts in spiritual matters, and, if necessary, in the science of medicine and psychiatry, who have a sense of spiritual realities. Right there near the end, the word psychiatry. That word, that discipline, didn't exist in 1614 when the Ritual Romanum was written. The profound importance of this addition is that the church is recognizing the advent of medical science and its importance when it comes to discernment regarding paranormal religious phenomena. You can't be a nun if you're diagnosed with certain types of brain tumors for fear of false religious visions that are actually tumor-induced hallucinations. A diagnosed schizophrenic would have an incredibly hard time 
convincing a Catholic bishop with moral certitude that he's possessed by a demon. However, it appears that no one of any authority insisted to Michael that he get a psychiatric evaluation. Ever. The hammer that was Reverend Vincent saw a big, fat nail in the person of Michael Taylor. The instructions for an exorcism do not specifically call for the naming of the demon or demons inhabiting the body of a possessed person. But in practice, it seems incredibly helpful. Why? Because the tendencies or personalities, if you will, of these demons can give the exorcist a great advantage if they know who they're dealing with. If it's, say, the demon Renove, a skilled exorcist would be able to figure this out by the many different languages the possessed person can suddenly speak and understand. Renove, just so you know, will usually leave when asked without any major problems. Whereas Agares will cause an earthquake to throw the exorcist off their game and hang around a little longer. But if we're dealing with any of the biggies, you know, Astaroth, Beelzebub, or Lucifer himself, then it's going to take some doing. But again, it's always better to know exactly who you're dealing with. In the 2005 film The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which, by the way, was largely based on the true events of the Annalise Michel exorcism in 1973, the priest, as portrayed in the film, clearly understood the importance of knowing the names of his spiritual foes. Depart from this servant of God! Tell me your six names! We are the ones who dwell within. But me who shush your head but talk Now, going back hundreds of years, there's always been a necessary level of discernment when it comes to exorcisms, and it's genuinely reassuring to see the church evolve along with the advancements in psychiatric care when it comes to candidates for exorcisms and be less quick to jump to the conclusion that virtually any malady should be attributed to demonic possession. It seems, however, that many of those guardrails were ignored during the charismatic rise in the 60s and 70s, then continuing well into the satanic panic of the mid-1980s before tapering off. Okay, we have the affected person that is suspected of being possessed. We have permission from the local bishop to start the exorcism process. The exorcist then begins the discernment phase to reach an accurate diagnosis. Once confirmed that the person is indeed possessed by a demon of hell, the exorcism can begin. Chapter 4 of the Catholic Rite lays it all out, and it's pretty simple. It begins with the sprinkling of holy water to protect the affected from additional attacks, then follows the prayer of the litany, by which the mercy of God is invoked upon the possessed through the intercession of all the saints. This part can take a while. There are a ton of saints. It's also here that the exorcist can begin to ask the name of the demon or demons 
present. Then any number of psalms are recited to implore God's protection and extol the victory of Christ over the evil one. Then the gospel is proclaimed as a sign of the presence of Christ, followed by the laying of hands to invoke the power of the Holy Spirit so that the devil may depart. After which, the baptismal promise of faith is renewed with, of course, the renunciation of Satan. Then finally, the Lord's Prayer is recited. Once these steps are followed, the troubled person is shown the Lord's cross, the source of grace, and the sign of the cross is made over the person, by which Christ's power over the devil is shown. Finally, he says a deprecative formula by which God is petitioned, as well as an imperative formula by which the devil, in the name of Christ, is directly adjured to withdraw from the troubled person. And then just, you know, repeat as often as necessary until the person is completely set free. And that's it. Not as dramatic as we see in the movies, but supposedly, every now and then, an exorcist comes upon a person with not just one persistent demon, who is really not into getting back to hell anytime soon, but several. In the case of Emily Rose, there were six. Six demons that were intent on staying, despite the absolute authority of Christ's stand-in, asking them nicely to vacate poor Emily's body. Eventually, they have to listen because, well, the power of Christ compels them. So, generally speaking, a possessed person will have one evil spirit taking up residence in their body. Emily Rose had six. Poor Michael Taylor's possession was diagnosed from an all-too-brief examination by Reverend Vincent and quite a lot of hearsay from his one-time crush, Marie Robinson, who, let's be honest, stood to gain personally by Michael officially being declared a person, quote, under the influence of Satan. What they discovered, according to Reverend Vincent, was, incredibly, no less than 48 demons fighting for Michael Taylor's very soul. On the next episode, we'll take you inside St. Thomas's Church on the evening of October 5th, 1974, and fully investigate the shocking and tragic exorcism of Michael Taylor. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within Season 2 the Demons of Yorkshire is a Cavalry Audio production produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.